we'll come to the time in our service, we're going to look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to, first of all, Galatians chapter 4. Again, this is our home base passage that we're working out of, Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. And if you put a finger there and then another finger in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, that is on page 681 in this Brown Pew Bible, if you're using that. And when you found those passages, would you stand? We'll read together, starting with Galatians and then flip over to Matthew. Galatians 4, beginning at verse 4, Paul says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, and here's where we'll focus today, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Let me write, receive the full rights as sons, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Over to Matthew now. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Jesus, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. I think that's probably an understatement. And all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. <coughs> yeah. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with the mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they, gave, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, gets the same dream as the Magi. And God says, you got to get out of Bethlehem now. Like not in the morning, tonight. Because Herod's going to come and try to kill the child. So they pack up that night, head off to Egypt to hide until Herod dies. Verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was fulfilled through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing now on this time in his word. Spirit of God, we ask you to continue to be present with us. You have been already, and we trust that you will continue to be now as we come to your word. Would you speak powerfully through this word as you have to me this week in study? 
God, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds and hearts to receive what you want to show us from this passage. God, some of these things are, are heavy, uh, a deep dive theologically, but I trust that by your spirit you're going to bring understanding, you're going to bring conviction, you're going to bring joy and, and blessing because of it. You tell us in your word, when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each person here this morning. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Um, it was uh, actually a few years after its premiere in 2005, but I remember quickly being drawn in by the Fox television series Prison Break uh, when it was recommended to us by some friends. Did you see that show? Did anyone watch that? Okay, a couple people. Good. Uh, if you didn't see it, uh, Prison Break, it basically follows the story of this brilliant structural engineer, Michael Schofield, as he carries out a masterful plan to be placed in the exact same prison as his brother was, who's been wrongly convicted and sentenced to death row, so that he can carry out this, this plan to help his brother escape and clear his name. It's a fascinating story. And beyond the great writing and, and intense drama, one of the things that's really captivating to me about the whole storyline is the way it's the incredible sacrifice of this brother, sacrificing both his freedom along with his safety to be put in a maximum security prison as a fellow inmate in order to carry out this plan to bring his brother to freedom, a, a demonstrated act of, of love that goes way beyond words and which the majority of us, I'm sure, would probably never carry out in reality. He does it. And as we continue in this teaching series this morning, which entitled In the Fullness of Time, and look specifically now at that portion of the Apostle Paul's description in verse or in chapter four of, of Jesus being born under the law to redeem those under the law, along with its historical outworking in Matthew 2, I think we see a remarkable similar storyline in the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now, of course, the stories aren't identical. In prison break, one brother must break the law. He has to actually commit armed robbery in order to be placed in the same prison as his brother. Jesus, of course, remains innocent throughout. He just needs to be willing to enter into our condemned existence. And then where both brothers are freed as they escape the prison, sorry to spoil the series for you if you're going to watch it, both brothers escape uh, and, and are able to get out of prison. Jesus gives his life in substitution for condemned and, and truly guilty men and women, offering his life as a payment for their redemption through his death. But with both stories depicting someone willingly placing themselves under the condemnation of the law in order to bring about freedom for those they loved, I think the similarities are still strong enough to warrant a comparing the two together. And in fact, as long as we're talking about similar storylines, I wonder uh, as when you consider the details of the passage we read in Matthew 2 there about a baby being born under oppressive government and then having to be hidden in order to escape slaughter. I wonder how many of you thought of that story at the beginning of Exodus with the birth of Moses. Now again, those stories are not identical either, but when you consider that you know, Moses didn't choose to be born at that time in Egypt, Moses also survives amidst the slaughter of Hebrew boys and goes on to deliver God's people from freedom underneath Egyptian rule, I don't think it's a difficult to see how people saw similarities between those two stories as well. 
But while I can assure you that given the historical distance alone, no one was comparing the coming of God's rescuer in the first century with prison break, uh, there's all kinds of New Testament evidence to suggest that many people, many people expected parallels between the deliverance that Moses brought for God's people and the kind of deliverance that the Messiah was going to bring when he came. The problem with that, however, being that while the deliverance that Moses brought for God's people under Pharaoh, it certainly did point ahead to the redemption that Jesus was going to bring when he came, the kind of redemption Jesus came to bring in his first coming, spiritual, not physical, along with who or what he came to bring redemption from, that is, condemnation under the law, not political oppression, were both very different than Moses. And maybe you'd say, oh, well, isn't that interesting? It's too bad for them. That, that must have been very disappointing. What's that got to do with me in 2019? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because in all kinds of different ways, here's the thing. We can wrongly draw some of the very same conclusions in our own lives today. Presuming that following Jesus is going to bring about the kind of deliverance that Moses brought about for us. So if I follow Jesus, I'm going to be delivered from any kind of physical oppression, uh, addiction, disease, suffering of any kind, instead of the kind of deliverance that Jesus actually came to bring in his first advent. We can become disappointed and disillusioned because of it. Now, don't misunderstand me and, and lose me for the rest of the message. The, the redemption Jesus brings about in his incarnation and eventual death results in all the kinds of deliverance that Moses brought and more. Uh, uh, slaves are freed in Jesus' name, just like with Moses, but all kinds of other things. Uh, addictions and, and diseases are healed. Uh, broken marriages and relationships are restored and on and on and on because of Jesus' incarnation. And as we saw in Revelation 21 last week, God's promise is that when the time has fully come for Jesus to return again, he's going to make all of these sad present realities come untrue. The point is that the redemption Jesus entered into human history to offer in his first coming was not primarily to free you from all of the problems that we encounter in our everyday lives. It was to free you from your greatest problem. Namely, the inability of every single one of us to live according to the demands of God's law. That's your greatest problem if you didn't know. And the reason is, it's because we failed to do that. It's resulted in our separation from God and our standing condemned under his just judgment. And that's what Jesus came to redeem us from in his first coming. So in order to help us really grasp and understand the purpose of Jesus' first advent, as well as creating us an increasing hope for when he will at last come again. I want to look at these two passages in just two ways this morning. I want to show you Jesus born under the law or the rule of men, and then Jesus born under the law of Moses. Okay, Jesus born under the law of men, born under the law of Moses. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage actually in Matthew? We're going to start there. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Follow along with me as we begin to look at this first reason that Paul gives us as to why God sent his son, born of a woman, in the fullness of time. Okay, so let's look first of all at Jesus born under the law or the rule of men. 
born under the law of men. Now, I don't know. I, I know I just finished saying that Jesus didn't come to free us from political oppression and, and danger in his first advent. And I think the clearest evidence of that we have right here in this passage in Matthew 2. Because what we see is that rather than just wiping out Herod, wiping out uh, the entire Roman Empire that was currently ru ruling over the Jews when Jesus was born with just a snap of his infant fingers, Jesus wasn't just like, I am the God-man. He didn't do that. Instead, he, we see Jesus uh, fleeing from Herod. He's hiding out like a common fugitive in order to escape death. Okay, so fine. If, if being born under the law doesn't refer to Herod or Roman law, well, why spend any time talking about this historical time period or the rulers under which Jesus was born in that day at all? Well, I think the reason it's still worth looking into a little more deeply is because, as I just said, living under Roman oppression in general and under uh, a pro-Roman power-hungry uh, rulership like King Herod in particular, God's people were, were longing for freedom. They were longing for deliverance. They believed that they'd finally have when God's Messiah, his promised rescuer, came. The same kind of deliverance that God had used Moses to bring about generations earlier. They were like, when are you going to come and set us free? And I told you, there's all kinds of New Testament evidence to uh, suggest that this is what they believe. Let me just give you two really clear examples I see, and then one kind of implied example, which I think is going to kind of round out the picture for us. The first we see in Matthew chapter 11. There we have John the Baptist. He's been put in prison by Herod Antipas, who's actually the son of the Herod who tries to put Jesus to death. And John sends word from his prison cell to Jesus through his disciples to ask Jesus, uh, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Second example we see at the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus, uh, the resurrected Jesus, is about to ascend into heaven, and his disciples are stopping, and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 just before you go, Lord, uh, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see the, the, the implications in both questions? The question behind the question is, okay, if you're the Messiah, if you're the promised rescuer, how come we haven't been rescued yet? If you're the promised rescuer, how come I'm still in prison? If you're the one come to set us free, how come Rome is still in power? You're leaving now and, and, and you haven't rescued us. And then the implied example, which we see here in Matthew chapter 2, for in response to the Magi's question, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We read this in verse 3. Look with me there. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, one obvious reason for why he's so disturbed had to do simply with the fact that Herod the Great, as he was referred to historically, was a notoriously paranoid ruler. He, he had, apparently, his wife and even some of his sons put to death when he thought that they were a threat to his throne. So he was just a super paranoid guy. But in having... Every boy, two years of age and under, killed in Bethlehem in the vicinity after learning that the Magi had skipped town and weren't going to reveal the location of this baby king. What that shows us, I think, is that Herod believed that the kind of rescue and redemption the Messiah was going to bring was the kind that Moses was going to bring as well. That is, political and religious freedom from the present ruling powers. Israel's going to be back on the top of the pile again. He thought that too, which is why he thought, 
I'm in trouble here if I don't get rid of this Messiah. I better take care of this. But as you follow the life of Jesus from his birth onwards, what you clearly see is Jesus, he hadn't come to stage some kind of military coup. That's not what's going on. He hadn't come to free his people from political oppression, physical enslavement in his first advent. But although he hadn't come to do those things, what's very clear as well is he had also very much still come to rule. He'd still come to rule, and I think one of the ways we know that is, is when Jesus begins his earthly ministry around 30 years of age, his very first message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, the king is here, and my kingdom is now breaking in on this world. So he'd absolutely come to rule. And what that means for you and I today, thinking back to this, is that those magi following that star to Jerusalem, were right. They were right about who it was they were searching for. A king had absolutely come. A king had absolutely been born. The, the word, as John says in John 1, had taken on flesh and dwelt among us 2,000 years ago when God decided the timing was perfect. And although Jesus came to bring a very different kind of deliverance than Perhaps his people then or even today thought that he might be bringing, that they were expecting. The fact remains, the king that all the world has been longing for, namely a king who will rule with, with justice but also mercy, a king who will rule with absolute power but also with humility, that king had come at last in the coming of Jesus, and he came to rule, and we believe he is still ruling to this day, sitting on his throne high and exalted. But the question I want to ask you to think about for yourself, and only you can answer this question as we think about who this baby born under the law truly was, is this. Will I respond to this king like the Magi, or will I respond to him like Herod? And I'm asking you to consider that question, whether you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus or not, because our initial response to Jesus' rule will determine whether or not you experience the redemption that Jesus did come to offer in his first advent. But every response to Jesus' rule after that will determine whether you worship him in truth, like the Magi, or only in feigned worship, like Herod. It'll determine whether you follow his lead wherever he calls you, whether you offer the best of what you have in grateful worship of him, or whether what you truly want is to remain as a ruler over your own life, using every means necessary in order to maintain the illusion of control and power over your own world. How do you respond to this king who's come to rule? Okay, so that's Jesus born under the law of men, born under the law and rule of others, yes, but absolutely come to rule himself. The last thing I want to look at together with you is the redemption from the law Jesus actually came to bring in his first coming. So let's look lastly at Jesus born under the law of Moses. Born under the law of Moses. So again, in describing this moment in time which appears incomprehensible to us, but which God says was exactly on time, Jesus 
the son sent, born of a woman. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that he was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Would you flip over to that passage now in Galatians chapter 4? Now, if the law that Jesus was born under, which he came to redeem us from, was not political oppression or governing authorities, then what was it? What was this law Jesus came to redeem us from? Well, having just kind of jumped into Galatians 4, right in the middle of the letter here, the answer might not be immediately obvious to you, particularly if you haven't spent a lot of time reading Galatians or maybe just reading the Bible in general. Because all throughout the Bible, generally speaking, the law, for the most part, is a direct reference to the perfect order in which God designed men and women to live by which we could remain in relationship with him. That's generally speaking what we could say the law, as the Bible refers to it, is. The perfect order in which God designed men and women to live by which we could remain in relationship with God. And the easiest place to see this is when we go all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden. And there we, say, we see that they live, work, and play in perfect harmony and relationship with God there. And because sin had not yet entered the world, uh, the, the only law or perfect order that Adam and Eve were required to live according to is that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. As long as they keep that law, they remain in unbroken relationship with God. But when they rebel against God's law uh, that was intended for their good and they eat from the tree, the result is that, as we saw in the last series, they become forever curved away from God and inward on themselves. And they must now leave the garden where they dwelt in God's presence. Not because God's vindictive, but because he's holy. And sin, which they are now covered with, cannot be in God's presence. And now, because sin has caused all humanity to be curved away from God and in on ourselves, well, God now needs to be a lot more explicit as to how it is we need to order our lives in order to be free from sin and restored to relationship with him again. So, by the time we get to the book of Exodus, God has now formed this people through one man, as he promised, Abraham. And after freeing or delivering his people uh, from their political enslavement through Moses, God tells his people now how they are to order their lives in order to be delivered from their spiritual enslavement, the thing which keeps them separated from him. And because God delivers this new law for his people's good through Moses, that's one of the reasons why God's law is often or sometimes referred to as the law of Moses. And so, on the surface, anyway, it's like danger averted, right? we got a plan now. Okay, now we can move forward, right? Because God has clearly laid out this new order, this new law through his servant Moses. And in order to have life in God again, in order to escape separation and death that all humanity was subjected to because of Adam and Eve and their rebellion, now all they need to do is just live according to this new order. God's clearly laid it out for them, just Live according to this new order, danger averted. God says plainly, Leviticus 18, 5, Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. Great. Simple, right? Just live according to my law. Yeah. No. <laughs> not, not simple at all, right? And in fact, 
before Moses can even make it down the mountain with the stone tablets in which God has inscribed the law on, the people are already breaking the law. And the sad reality is that try as we might, we continue to break God's law to this day. And rather than being a a pathway back to restored relationship with God, the law instead became an impossible crushing weight for us. A, A cruel taskmaster that was like pointing out at every step just how far we are away from being restored to relationship with God, just to show us you can't do it. Became just this cruel taskmaster over us now, always, rather than being this pathway back to restored relationship. Uh, I think one place you see this really powerfully illustrated is in John Bunyan's classic allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, where he describes a scene on that journey that just depicts this weight and, and crushing weight of the law so well. Christian's traveling companion. Faithful is describing a really difficult section of the path that he's trying to come up, uh, come along, and he comes across a man who just comes out of nowhere, knocks him down, and begins beating him again and again mercilessly. He says this: "So soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow. For down he knocked me and laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him wherefore he served me so. Forgive the old English here, but." He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and beat me down backwards. So I lay at his foot as dead as before. When I came to myself again, I cried in mercy. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. And in response, Christian tells his friend, that man that overtook you was Moses. He spareth none, neither he knoweth how to show mercy to those that transgress his law. Wow. Just think of the best, most moral person you know, and this will still be their devastating experience as they try to live perfectly according to God's law. They just can't do it. As as Paul says plainly in Galatians 3.10, quoting uh, He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 27. He says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So that's the standard. It's the pathway is there, but the standard is perfection. In order to be restored back to relationship with God, the standard for following this law is perfection. I don't know about you, but when I look at this, like, from an outside perspective, just looking in on this, particularly if you've experienced anything like this kind of struggle personally, it makes God's law seem cruel, unjust. It's almost like a taunting carrot on a string kept in front of us, always out of reach, that we can never actually get to. Like, maybe... Maybe the point we've been missing all along is that God doesn't truly want to be in relationship with us at all. Like this is just a bad breakup and God doesn't know how to do it. Maybe God's just done with us. He's just waiting for this whole human history thing to play out so he can start again fresh. If God really wanted to be back in relationship with us, like he says, we reason, 
Why wouldn't he just remove this impossible barrier of the law so that we could reach him again? But as Paul tells us plainly in Romans chapter 8, our problem is not that the law isn't truly a pathway back to life and restored relationship with God. Our problem is that our flesh, weakened by sin, is simply incapable of perfectly following it. Paul writes in Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's a problem, right? We have this pathway back, but we can't do it which is undoubtedly what led to Paul's plaintive cry just one chapter before in Romans 7, which anyone who's ever tried to follow God's law unswervingly before has cried themselves when he says this, We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate to do, I do. Later on, verse 21, So I find this law at work, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? And with the hope of Christmas, the hope of Paul's whole argument in Galatians 4 about Jesus being born under the law to redeem those under the law is found in Paul's reply to his very own question in the very next verse when he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how. As he goes on to write in Romans 8, chapter 3, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering so that he condemned sin in sinful man. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. This is something Paul lays out explicitly for us in the passage just before our passage in Galatians 4 and Galatians 3. If you're still there, look at Galatians 3 beginning at verse 21. Paul says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoner to the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. Do you see it now? The point of God's law wasn't to taunt us with an impossible task list that we could never live according to. It was to reveal to us our desperate and utter need for someone who could. And so God's solution to your sin-weakened flesh, which would keep us and from being able to live according to his law, wasn't to remove the law. It was to send his son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. 
Paul says plainly, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Or as Jesus plainly states it himself in the Sermon on the Mount, where uh, I think if you could talk about our inability to keep the law, Jesus ramps it up even higher. He's like, you think that was bad. It was said this, I say to you this, and he makes it even harder to complete. But then Jesus says this himself, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And this, right here, is now where everything we've been learning for the last two weeks about Jesus being fully God and fully man now begins to all come together as Paul begins to lay out the reason for why Jesus had to be both. Because in order to keep the law perfectly, to keep it in every way without any diversion or swerving, God needed someone who wasn't weakened by the flesh as we are. That's why Jesus had to be fully God. He had to be uh, perfect in his obedience to the law. But in order to truly be obedient, in order to truly keep the law and not just feign obedience, not just feign being tempted but still keeping the law or, or suffering, Jesus had to be fully man and experience life under the law as we do. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So this then, if you didn't know, is the reason why Jesus is sometimes referred to as the second Adam. Have you heard this? He's sometimes referred to as the second Adam. For where the first Adam failed to keep God's law and brought sin and death and condemnation from God and brought it onto all humanity, in the coming of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he fulfills God's law perfectly and brings complete freedom from condemnation under the law for us. And he now, just as Adam was our representative head at the beginning, Jesus now becomes the representative head for all who put their faith in him. We receive his reward where we receive Adam's punishment. Jesus entered into the prison house where his people were held in bondage, writes F.F. Bruce, so as to set them free. The ultimate prison break. It wasn't the freedom that perhaps we were expecting, but it's most certainly freedom from our greatest problem that we all share in common under the law of God. And, and what this incredible demonstrated act of love and, and humility from Jesus' first advent reveals is that not only does Jesus enter our condemned existence under the law to take the penalty of death that our law-breaking deserved, it's as though Jesus went into the prison and, and, and didn't just help us escape. He went into the cell for you and opened the door so you could just walk out free. But not only that, he also lives perfectly under the law so that now he can also apply his perfect obedience to our account as well. Which means that by putting your faith in Jesus, 
you are both redeemed from the penalty of the law as well as rewarded for obedience to the law as though you'd kept it perfectly. You know what that means? Is anybody in here tired this morning? You're tired from carrying around that guilt and shame of your sin. Whether you know Jesus or not, that thing that you think is too big for God to forgive, that thing that you feel like, uh, I, I, I can never, I can't face God, I know I've done too much, that to know that you can lay that down at last. You have freedom in Christ from whatever that is. It doesn't matter what it is. You have freedom in him. The penalty for that sin has been paid now and always. You don't need to carry it anymore. And it also means that you can stop trying to earn God's acceptance, trying to earn relationship with him through your obedience because in Jesus, you already have it. You are fully accepted in him. You have his perfect record put on you, which doesn't give you freedom to sin in any way you want, but it gives you freedom at any time to come and know you are fully accepted because the price has been paid. And when God looks at you through Jesus, he sees his perfect obedience not your failure. As all of which is so profoundly summarized by Paul in just one verse. Probably you know it, maybe. 2 Corinthians 5.21. As Paul says, God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to become sin for us, bearing our curse under the law, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God both redeemed from our disobedience and credited with his perfect obedience. Thanks be to God for his incredible gift in Jesus. Amen.